Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. I'm very thankful to have many visitors with us, encouraged by your presence. Uh, especially thankful to, to finally have the Ballard family with us. Uh, we, we certainly have been uh, praying for quite some time uh, for, for more workers in the kingdom, uh, in, in the, the harvest, uh, and God has, has answered our prayers in that, and we are, we are very thankful for it. If you want to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we've been for the last two weeks kind of been using this scripture here in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 as a little bit of a springboard to focus on the dangers that fear can pose to our spiritual lives. Here in 2 Timothy 1 and in verse 7, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, For God, has, uh, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear is not one of the fruits of the spirit. And so we've been focusing on how Satan uses fear against us. We two weeks ago looked at King Ahaz back in the book of Isaiah and how fear fueled moral compromise in his life. And uh, instead of putting his trust in God, allowing his worldly fears to push him towards putting his trust in Assyria. We looked last week at the one talent man and the fool in Proverbs and how fear can fuel idleness and neglect in our service to the Lord. And today I want us to focus to a large extent on King Saul in the Old Testament and see how fear can fuel prejudice within our lives. But before we get there, I want us to take a moment to focus on God's answer to fear in this passage. In 2 Timothy 1 in verse 7, he says, We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, or of a sound mind. Uh, I want us to try to shift our focus a little bit today from simply focusing on the, the problems and dangers that fear pose, to focus in particular on God's solution to that, on what can help us through that. He says, God has given us a spirit of power. When we were talking about fear fueling moral compromise in King Ahaz, we see that since God has given us a spirit of power, we don't have to fear because we have faith in someone much more powerful than Syria or Israel and the king of Syria all combined. God has given us a spirit of, of power and we can have faith in his power. We talked about God giving us a spirit of self-control or a sound mind, disciplined thinking. And as we talked about last week, we don't have to fear because we recognize that there is something much more important than our earthly life and experiences. And through disciplined thinking, through making sure that we have the proper priorities, we can bring our fears and worries into check and keep them in the proper perspective. We can keep first things first and not allow our emotions and our fears to take control. But today what I want us to focus on is the spirit of love that God has given us. We can drive away fear by replacing it with love and allowing love rather to be our primary motivation and the strongest influence of our thinking and living each day. The, the heading for today's lesson is love is greater than fear. And I, I, I could have put fear fuels prejudice kind of like our previous lesson, fear fuels uh, moral compromise, fear fuels idleness and neglect. But, but I want instead to form this lesson around the solution and not the problem. 
I, I want us to focus on how love can uh, accomplish great things even in the face of fear. And really, if we wanted to go back through the previous lessons, we, we could have said faith is greater than fear. Hope is greater than fear. And love is greater than fear. Uh, that really ultimately is, is the answer. How is it that love is greater than fear? Well, we first need to recognize that love and worldly fear cannot coexist. They don't go together. They pull against one another. Turn your Bibles to this passage that uh, Christopher just read for us. 1 John chapter 4. I want us to read that again together. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start here in verse 17. 1 John 4, 17, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Fear and love are opposed to one another. They pull us in different directions. And yet we're told the more that we abide in God's love and, and the more that we are motivated and transformed by God's love and reflect God's love, the less and less we're going to be burdened and driven by fear in our service to him. Now, certainly we see throughout the scriptures that there is a proper fear and reverence that we need to have for God. The Old Testament talks about that many times. Certainly even the New Testament talks about the fear and reverence we need to have for God. Um, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, God told Israel, uh, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so right there in one passage, we're told we need to fear God and we need to love God. So there, there certainly is a fear that we might refer to as a, uh, a reverence, a respect, an awe for God's authority and power. But here in 1 John 4, we're talking about fear in its general sense. Uh, a fear that shrinks back in anticipation of, of harm or of danger. Th think about it this way. If, if we were to ask uh, an actor to come up in front of us, and we asked him to demonstrate what it would look like if somebody that he fears walked into the room. How would he do that? Well, he'd probably shrink back, you know, take a few steps back, maybe, maybe pull up his hands, turn away his face, kind of hide. What if we asked that same actor to demonstrate that somebody he loves just entered the room? What, what would he do? The exact opposite. He, he'd move forward. He'd draw close to them. He'd want to embrace them. Love and fear pull us in different directions. If you ask that actor, well, now we want you to demonstrate that somebody who you both fear and love entered the room. How would he do that? Well, he'd probably try to demonstrate some type of internal conflict that he's being pulled one way and also pulled the other. The fact is, love and fear love and worldly fear don't coexist. They, they don't work together. They pull against one another and one of them is going to win out. When you have that type of conflict, one is going to be stronger. And this principle doesn't just apply in our relationship with God. It applies also in our relationships with one another. 
I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. The primary example that we're going to consider today is the example of King Saul. Last week we uh, talked about David and his encounter with Goliath. We're going to go just a chapter past that uh, in 1 Samuel 18. And I want to do a rather lengthy reading here. But as we read this together, I want you to keep your ears open for love and fear. And we see how these two things are working in this passage, how they're working in people's relationship specifically with David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 1, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went down and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertaking, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I'm going to skip ahead and read one more passage in this chapter in verse 28 and 29. It says, but when Saul saw uh, and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Do you see what's going on here? Jonathan loves David. The people love David. Michael, Saul's own daughter, loves David. But what about Saul? Well, no, he can't love David because he fears him. He begins to eye him with suspicion. He fears that he is getting the loyalty of the people. And despite the fact that Saul should have loved and appreciated David, that David had done great things for the kingdom, was doing great things for him, that he was loyal and courageous, and he was growing close to even his own family members, Saul couldn't love him because Saul feared him. And this fear even turned into an act of animosity against him. As he's eyeing him with suspicion, he becomes his enemy continually. And I think it's very ironic there in verse 11 and 12. It says that, that Saul tries to, to pin David to the wall with a spear, and David escapes from him twice. 
And then what's the next thing we read? That David feared Saul? No, that Saul feared David. Even though David is the one who probably has every right to be afraid, Saul is the one who is allowing fear to drive his life and allowing it to uh, direct his relationship with David. Saul is driven and controlled by fear. And so when it comes to love and fear, one or the other is going to win out. And yet as God's people, he's told us he has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. I want to go ahead and start making a little bit of application here. Who is it that you fear? Who is it that you might be inclined to, to eye with suspicion? Is it maybe people that, that don't look like you? People that have a, a different skin color, that come from a different side of the train tracks, a different socioeconomic sector. Maybe they have a different culture, a different accent, speak a different language. And this doesn't just go one direction. It's not just that you know, the, the majority fears the minority. Maybe it's the minority who, who fears the majority as well. Or, or maybe you fear people that wear a, a blue uniform and a badge, that have chosen to make it their life's profession, presumably to protect their communities and to uphold law and order. It really doesn't matter which direction this fear goes or whether or not you feel it is founded or unfounded. God does not want us as his people to be driven by fear in our relationship and in our action, interaction with the world and with people around us. He wants us to be driven rather by love. Well, what, what exactly is the problem with being driven and directed by fear? Well, fear judges, whereas love believes and hopes. We, we see this with Saul. Saul very quickly is making judgments about the threat that David poses to him because of his fear. And I think we, it's not just that fear judges, fear often pre-judges. I'm convinced that fear is perhaps the number one biggest contributor to prejudice in our country. We fear things that are outside of our experience, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our understanding, and that often manifests itself in being suspicious or prejudiced or even hating those that are not like us. It, I think really the dangerous thing about this is that when others fear and are prejudiced towards us, we often react by then fearing and being prejudiced towards them in turn. We think that to defend ourselves, it's okay for us to then prejudge others' motives and intentions based on their skin color, their culture, or the uniform that they wear. But love is not quick to judge. It's not quick to respond in kind. It's very hesitant to come to any negative judgment. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It believes the best, hopes the best, and leaves judgment in God's hands. Let's look at the example of David again here, just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24, and I want to start in verse 8. We see now at this point, Saul is pursuing David, actively seeking to kill him. And there comes a point where Saul takes a break in this cave 
And unbeknownst to him, David and his men are back inside that cave. Look how David then reacts in verse 8 as he now reveals himself to Saul. Starting in verse 8, it says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Brethren, that's the attitude of the servant of God. You know, Saul had no reason to fear David. David had every reason to fear Saul. But he refused to let that corrupt his thinking against him. And he courageously steps forward here, now making himself extremely vulnerable to Saul. Believing that there's enough good in Saul that Saul will see the reality of this situation, will see the mercy that David has shown him, and won't continue in his rampage to, to, to kill David. David, in essence, is saying, you may not value my life, but I value yours. You may want to, to bring down judgment on me for my presumed sins, but I'm not going to judge you, even though your sin is right in front of me. I'm going to let God be the judge. And when David says that, he's not eager for God's judgment to come down upon Saul. Because what ends up happening at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we see God does judge Saul and his household. Then Saul dies in battle. What is David's reaction? David mourns for Saul. David, in fact, composes a hymn uh, in, in memorial of Saul. This man who had tried for a great portion of his life to kill him. Brethren, that is the attitude of the servant of God. Somebody who is directed by love and not by fear. When love is the predominant force directing our actions, this is what it should look like. Fear judges. Love believes all things, hopes all things, loves endures all things. It looks for the good in others. It sees the value in others, no matter how hard it may be to find it sometimes. Let's turn to our New Testaments in Luke chapter 6 and see what Jesus says about this kind of love. In Luke chapter 6 and in verse 31, we hear what we often call the, the golden rule. It says in verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Notice what he continues to say in verse 32 and following. It says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great 
and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here, love does for others, not what they would do to me, but what I would wish for them to do to me. And that even applies to my enemies, to the very ones who may be seeking my life, the very ones who would do me harm. I need to react not in fear and suspicion and hate back towards them. I need to react in love towards those very people. The prejudice and hate and insensitivity or immorality of others does not give me a free pass to then treat them differently. We can't allow our fear to get in the way of showing God's love. And you notice there, treating others the way we want to be treated means, in verse 37, judging others the way we would want to be judged. It means giving them the benefit of the doubt. Assuming the best about their motives and intentions. Giving the best possible spin to their words and actions, not rushing to negative conclusions. That's what fear does. That's not what love does. And so we need being driven and directed and founded in love, even when people are actively seeking our harm, to be seeking their good to be believing the best, focusing on the value that God has created within them. Love does everything it can to avoid coming to a negative conclusion about someone else's character. And when there is no other choice but to conclude something negative, it takes no pleasure in that. It mourns that, as David did, even of Saul. But along with that, we see that fear is self-focused, while love is others-focused. What caused Saul to develop this fear and animosity towards David in the first place? Well, it all started when they came back saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Saul's pride was wounded. He felt that his honor and his position as king were now insecure. And it was his self-interest and self-preservation that fueled the fires of this fear and suspicion against David. It wasn't a concern for the well-being of the people. The people were being greatly blessed by David. It wasn't a concern for the furtherance of God's will and God's purposes. In fact... The fact that, David, that God was with David was part of what made Saul afraid. This is a self-focused fear. How this is affecting him and his reputation and his position. Fear turns our focus internal, whereas love pushes us to focus on the needs uh, and desires of others around us. And while we can look at David as a good example in this, I, I think there is no greater example than Jesus himself. In Matthew 26, verse 36 through 39, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And I think as Jesus prays there to the Father, we, we have revealed to us the depth of the emotional burden that Jesus is bearing. He tells his disciples that he was sorrowful and troubled even unto death. He knows the full extent of what he is about to suffer. And he prays, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It was not Jesus' earthly will and desire to go through what he was about to suffer. Can can you imagine for a moment how you would feel in Jesus' situation? You know that in just a few hours, you are going to be abandoned by everyone you care about. And you're going to be all alone in the world as you are mocked, beaten, scourged, and your body is nailed to a piece of wood to hang there until it can hang on no longer. How do you think you would feel in that situation? Do you think you would be afraid? I can't imagine a much greater fear in this world than what Jesus was about to suffer. But what was Jesus's attitude in the face of that fear? We've recently, in our Monday night meetup, been studying through the Gospel of John. And this is something that's been very impressive to me. Uh, In John 12, in verse 27 and 28, We see Jesus make a statement that's somewhat similar to his statement in the garden. He says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We do see that Jesus, in his emotional struggle, does pray, Father, save me from this hour. But he knows God's plan. He knows what he must do, that this is the hour that he has come to, but he is greatly troubled. Well, in this state of great fear and trepidation and trouble and sorrow and grief, what does Jesus do? Look at the beginning of chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you were facing this kind of fear and this kind of grief and sorrow and trouble, what what do you think you would be doing? Jesus? He's washing feet. He's washing the feet of the very people that are about to abandon him and deny him and even betray him. And for the next four chapters, Jesus isn't talking to his disciples about, you guys just don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what I'm feeling right now. That's not what he's saying. 
He's focused on them. Focused on preparing them, on leaving them an example of love and of service and of humility and of sacrifice. Look in chapter 14 and verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Who is the one who is troubled here? Jesus is the one who is getting ready to be denied and betrayed and crucified. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Brethren, that is our example. That is what love looks like. In the face of fear, in the face of whatever emotions we're dealing with, love chooses to focus on others. As Jesus himself laid down his life for the very ones who betrayed him, denied him, beat him, and crucified him. And we love because he first loved us. Why was Jesus able to go through such a horrific experience and still keep his focus on the needs of others? Because perfect love casts out fear. It conquers fear. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, we're told that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy set before him? Our salvation. The salvation of souls that brings great joy into the the halls of heaven. Jesus shows us that love is stronger than fear. Love is stronger than death. Love needs to be our foundation. It needs to be our driving force. The motivation of our thinking, our speaking, our living and acting each day. Brethren, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. What about you today? Are you living out of love in your interactions with others around you? Or are you being motivated by fear? Fear of what they think, fear of what they're going to say, fear of what's going on behind the scenes, fear of how they might react. We need to to get all of that out of our minds. We need not to be so self-focused, so ready to judge. We need rather to be driven and motivated by the type of love that we see in Jesus himself, the type of love that he has had for us. Love and fear pull us in two different directions, but if we allow God's love to be perfected within us, it will cast out fear. And and that's not a, a, a gentle word. When he says cast out, that means we're getting rid of it. It's no longer going to have hold over us because God's love is what controls us. It's what motivates us. It's what directs our actions from day to day. Have you allowed God's love to transform you today? Have you responded to his invitation of grace? If you realize today that that you have been uh, driven rather by, by fear in your service to God and your interactions with others, that you haven't allowed his love to do its perfect work within you, 
Won't you surrender to him today? Uh, If you have committed your life to the Lord, but you haven't been living it, you need to confess some sin in some public way that we can pray for you and help you as you, uh, by God's grace, uh, return to fellowship with him. We want to do that. That's why we're here. And if you've never put your old man of sin behind you, if you've never buried the fear of death in the waters of baptism to be raised to a hope of newness of life, won't you do that today? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 just persons. If there's any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord today, we ask that you'll make that known at this time. If you will, please stand as we sing this song.